0: Please join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, release us from our fears and restore us to God's heart. Open our souls. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. A reading from Paul's epistle to the to the Philippians, chapter 3 beginning with verse 7. The word of the Lord. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Riley. I had been trying to reach Bill all weekend. I'd called him multiple times. This was back in the early 1990s. I had left a voicemail, looked around everywhere for him. He was my campus minister and I let him know, Bill, I, I have to talk. It's urgent. I have to get this out. That Monday, I saw him at the chapel at the University of Virginia. We were there for a prayer meeting and as I Walked in the door. I ran up to him. He sat me down in a pew while everybody else gathered on stage. He said, Greg, what's going on? What's the matter? What's the matter? I said, Bill, I'm gay. He looked up at the stage. He motioned to the door. Greg, why don't we find some place more private? I looked up at the stage as every single campus crusader on it averted their gaze very quickly. They had all heard me say the word. I had never said it. Out loud in reference to myself. It was the early 1990s and I was a freshly minted Christian. I told Bill, I don't care. I need to be known. I wasn't raised a Christian. My dad was a senior executive in the federal government. I grew up in the suburban Washington, D.C. area. I had never gone to church or synagogue. I had never read the Bible. There were two sons in our happy atheist household. I was the gay one. Got a photo of me when I was little. Could we get that first photo? Um, I was uh, always um, a special kid. Uh, I made crude attempts to hide it, but there was always something about me. At age six, I asked... Christmas for an easy bake oven and a miniature porcelain tea set so that I could serve a proper English afternoon tea with my stuffed animals. Uh, There's a photo somewhere, I think I destroyed it, but there was a photo of me holding a miniature teacup between my, my thumb and index finger, my pinky sticking out like a rainbow flag. I got my easy bake oven, but I also got this next picture I was sentenced to not one but two terms on a boys' soccer team. (laughs) It didn't work. I came across a photo of me this week, um, came across a bunch of them, but uh, this next photo I came across this week while going through. uh, I was nine years old there on the left, and uh, the, the, the tall cousin in the middle with his you know, shirt button, unbuttoned down to his belly button and the flagrant display of masculinity was the one who uh, that next year tried to uh, abuse me uh, unsuccessfully. Um, as I was looking at the picture this week, I wondered, was there something about me that drew his suspicion? Was there something about me, even at that age, that declared that I was a potential victim? And yet now as I look at him, I have nothing but compassion for that cousin. Uh, a couple years later, his family found out that he was gay. And uh, his mother, in that afternoon, in a frantic tizzy, told him to pack a bag and leave and never come back. Because if his stepfather knew, or once his stepfather knew, he would kill him. And I believe he would have done just that. Um, my cousin was murdered in 1999 um suspicious circumstances that's good thank you but i wonder what it was like to be him in his household with a very violent father i was 11 years old when i found out when i realized it um we've got another photo could we get that next photo uh it's of uh, no not that one <laughs> that one there we go that's that was the one you wanted to see you've been waiting for decades for that but I tried. This was the day I knew. It was the summer of 1984. It was my cousin's wedding, a different cousin. Uh, I was 11 years old, and that photo was taken at the beginning of the the day before we carpooled from my grandmother's house in southwestern Virginia over to Greenville, Tennessee, where the uh, wedding was going to be. And it was during that wedding reception that I stood in the fellowship hall of that Baptist church in Greenville, Tennessee, and realized that my eyes were glued to one of the groomsmen. I couldn't get my eyes off him. I was, I was stuck, and I remember feeling the, the wave of shame coming over me as I realized that I was the gay kid. Uh, then I realized that everybody was noticing me staring at this groomsman, and then I was filled not only with shame, but with a wave of fear, realizing that I was being found out. Another thing that happened that same day is I overheard family members discussing the groomsman's brother who had been kicked out of his family because he was gay and their family were Christians and Christians wouldn't put up with someone like that. That was the day that I realized I was gay, that I felt the wave of shame hit me, that I realized I would be living my life in fear and hiding and it was the day that I realized that Christians hate gay people. My feelings were exclusive. I realized I felt toward other guys the way they felt toward girls. I was a six out of a six on the Kinsey scale. And 1984 was a terrible time to realize you're gay. 1984 was the height of the AIDS crisis. 1984 was the year in which 100 gay men were dying every single week of AIDS. Within a decade, it was a thousand gay men dying every single week from a disease that wasted you away. And I would sit and listen as all of my friends would crack jokes about how skinny all the gay people get before they die. I wish I could go back in time and tell that 11-year-old kid that I know everything about him and that I love him because I was having to hide crippled by shame. The school locker room left me in a state of near panic, always wondering if I would see something or if it would affect me. On the first day of seventh grade, just a month after that, I sprang into action. I remember on the first day of seventh grade, postering over the inside of my locker with a dozen shiny but tasteful pinups of Madonna. We're talking holiday, borderline, and After a couple months, I added like a virgin. I was posturing over my shame, fitfully trying to conceal what Alan Downs calls the velvet rage of shame and self-hatred. I was trying to make myself lovable and normal and straight and like everybody else and definitely not queer. I had no idea Madonna would become a gay icon. (laughs) That's enough of that one. I had always been... uh, that's good for the pick, thanks. I'd, I'd always been a gifted kid. I was a deep thinker. Some people passed off the fact that I was always perfectly put together in the perfectly fitted uniform. The, 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 the clothes were always so together. I was always so polished. And, and I think they, 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 they passed off that dandiness and quirkiness as a, maybe a side effect of being a genius because I wasn't really... I mean, we're talking astronomical like you, even at that point. Uh, and maybe it was just a corollary because I was going to study architecture and I, I fancied myself as a social progressive. I was a pacifist. I was against the death penalty. I was for nuclear disarmament. I remember a kid named Spencer in ninth grade having this aha moment as we were talking about death and he said, oh, that's right, Greg, you're an atheist. I didn't push back. I certainly did not believe in an ancient Near Eastern sky god who was secretly pulling the ropes somewhere. Uh, you know, there I was though, at that point, a gay teenager, pouring myself into my schoolwork because it's the only thing I was good at. It was the only place where I sensed I could make myself lovable, at least to my teachers. I was trying to cover over my shame. I tried everything. My senior year, I even had a sort of girlfriend. Uh, we kissed once and it was, Awkward, moist, she had on lots of lip gloss. <laughs> it's as far as I ever got. The thing that began to crack this whole life open began in the summer of 1984. Because my little gay atheist self was the kid who, while I was working on my schoolwork, would always toggle back and forth between CNN And headline news. I was a news junkie and I remember watching in the summer of 1984 as pro-life protesters in Atlanta, Georgia were being arrested in huge numbers for sitting in. Uh, they were, you know, over a thousand were, were arrested. Some of them spent over a hundred days in jail. And I remember watching it and I did not agree with them. I was pro-choice. I was an advocate of reproductive freedom like all the, all the smart people. Uh, but, I was watching these Christians, and they weren't shouting, and they weren't thugs. They were middle class, well-dressed, people with jobs who were intentionally choosing to go to jail because they believed something. They, and I thought it strange because we're talking about embryos here. But it, it profoundly affected me that, that somebody was willing to go to jail because of something they believed. You know, jail in my 15-year-old imagination was the place where people like me got raped. They were willing to risk that, risk violation, give up their, their freedom. They were crawling around on the ground with police in riot gear and batons, beating some of them. and And they were choosing to suffer on purpose. And I didn't know what to make of it. But that year, I was assigned a school project to write a paper on an issue that was controversial. And I chose to study abortion. This is back before the internet when to research something you actually had to go to libraries. And I remember sitting in a library, this you know desk up against a wall, this fluorescent light buzzing behind me. And I was sitting here reading up on, on what this procedure actually entails. And as I was reading, my heart began to sink because I re- realized that, that that the fetus was destroyed. And that left me in a weird spot philosophically because... I had to decide, is this, is, is, is life sacred or not? Is life inviolate or not? Because, you know, from an atheist perspective, you have to understand that, that, that there's no ground for any of this. You know, if, if it's okay to take a human life, then it's okay to take any human life. And if it's okay to take any human life, then human life has no value or meaning or ultimate significance. And yet, if I say that it's wrong, that justice is a real thing, and it's wrong to take a human life, then that means evil is real. And if evil was real, I reasoned, then, then goodness had to be real in order to be a foil from which one could discern what is truly unjust or evil. And if goodness exists, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre said that, that, that for any finite point to have any ultimate meaning, it must be in reference to an infinite point. And is there no infinite point? Like, it was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was already slipping down the slippery slope of the moral argument for the existence of God. And by the time I graduated from high school, I knew there was something to it. I knew there has to be a God. I suspected it was the God of the Jews and the Christians because I had seen Christians willingly giving up their freedom for what they believed for someone other than themselves. But there in the midst of it, I knew nothing of God, nothing of Christianity, and there was my shame in the middle of it all. I remember getting down on my knees in my bedroom once in high school and just begging God, God, I don't know who or what you are, but will you please forgive me for masturbating? Will you please forgive me for being gay? Will you please stop killing the feces? God, I'm willing to die for you if that's what you want, but I don't know who or what you are, and I don't know what's wrong with me, and I don't know what you want me to do. It was such deep well of shame inside of me, and I didn't know any Christians at least I didn't think I did. Uh, certainly no one had ever talked to me about Jesus except a grandmother years earlier and I couldn't remember what she had said about Jesus or whether it was applicable to gay people who have never gone to church. I first learned about Jesus while studying architecture at the University of Virginia. Um, I've shared this part of the story before. I remember, you know, the way you registered at UVA back before the internet is you showed up on the east side of the big dome basketball stadium and you went inside and you went down one aisle and down another, stop at this table, stop at that table. And after like 45 minutes later, you come out into a plaza on the other side and you're registered and there all the student groups have tables set up. And I remember I'd gone through, I knew I needed to find some Christians or somebody to tell me about Jesus because I didn't know what it was about. And uh, all of the groups were set up there, and I'd looked at the map of where they would be beforehand and looked and tried to figure out what group I should even try to talk to. And there was a, 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 a Asian Christian fellowship, but I wasn't raised Asian. There was a black Christian fellowship, but I was raised white. Um, there was a fellowship of Christian athletes, but, I mean, <laughs> there's InterVarsity Christian fellowship, but that sounded like a fellowship of Christian athletes. There was a Baptist student union, but I wasn't Baptist. I mean, growing up in the demographic box when it got to religion, I was whatever the last box was. There was the Episcopal Canterbury Students' Union, but I wasn't Episcopalian. There was the Catholic Students' Union, but I wasn't Roman Catholic. And then there was Campus Crusade for Christ, and they sounded like they go to the Middle East to shoot Muslims. <laughs> but I figured I would look at them because there wasn't a racial disqualification or a denominational disqualification or an athletic thing. Um, and... Uh, so they were going to be in the first row of tables. So I decided I would sneak around and go to the second row of tables and walk down and just look and see if they looked creepy, like if their hair was slipped back and they had big Bibles and three-piece suits or something. And uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, I got halfway through and started looking for where they should be, and I heard somebody say, would you like to take a survey? And I looked down, and they had switched tables. They were right in front of me. And uh, <laughs> and I said, Sure. And gave him my info. And uh, a week later, a guy stopped by, Mike Snyder, and took me through a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And he he was, he was could have been speaking in Ugaritic or Mandarin. I could not follow a bit of it. He asked me if I understood at the end. I lied. I said, yes. I didn't want to look dumb. And uh, he asked me if I'd ever prayed the prayer at the end. I lied. And I said, yes. I didn't want to look like, like I was unspiritual. Um, but then we got another photo. He gave me an invitation. Um, that is, I still own it, the invitation to a Bible study in Gilmer Hall, room 141 on September 5th of 1990 at 9 p.m. And that was the study I went to. And, uh, he told us all to get out our Bibles and I didn't own a Bible. So somebody loaned me a Bible and he said, we're going to turn to Luke, uh, uh, you know, 714 and I started looking for page 714, um, but it was in that group over the next months that there was a Bible study I remember called How to Be Sure You're a Christian. And at the end of it, I was sure I wasn't a Christian and I wanted to be. And I remember getting down in my dorm room floor afterwards in Doby, Doby dorm room 235. And for the first time, not just asking God to forgive me, but thanking God for Jesus. Thanking God that Jesus had forgiven all of my sins thanking him that he covered my shame, thanking him that he washed me and made me a son. And for the first time in my life, I had an assurance of salvation that I was actually loved by God because of what Jesus had done on my behalf. We got another photo here. Uh, the guy on the left there, Mike, is the guy who led me to Christ. He led the, their group. And, and Craig, in the middle with the Virginia Engineering t-shirt on, uh, he's the third person I ever came out to. Um, it's a good guy. And that's me with the glasses. Um, at age 20, I was baptized and became a member in a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in Virginia. And the following year, I moved to St. Louis and joined this church so that I could enroll at Covenant Seminary, not because I had any intention of ever becoming a pastor. That took another decade but I, I came because I wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to understand theology. I wanted to learn the scriptures. I, I was making up for lost time. Uh, and I had already read every book that R.C. Sproul had written and bought all his videos and watched them all five times, and I was ready for something more. Um, other than one very homophobic prank call by a group of fellow students, seminary was amazing because it's there that I really started to understand the depths of God's grace, the radicality of the gospel. It was there that I really began to experience God lifting my shame, clothing me in my shame, and I actually began to begin, ever hesitatingly, to, be, to, to feel myself loved. Decades have passed, and the truth is that my sexual orientation has never changed. Uh, While it is true that a small percentage of same-sex attracted men can develop a level of heterosexual functioning, uh, there is some some fluidity with sexuality, and there are always more bisexuals than there are gay people, uh, statistically. But the truth is that even in those instances where there is some shift, generally same-sex attractions do not ever go away. Uh, Mike Rosebush is a former vice president of Focus on the Family, and he's the former director of Exodus International's Professional Counselors Network. And he said of the many, many hundreds of cases of which he has personally seen and been aware, he has yet to identify a single instance in which same sex attraction went away. Um, it's not my sexual orientation that's changed, it's my life orientation because Jesus rescued me, a sinner. You know, with no hope save in the grace and mercy of God. And as a result, I've lived my life as a, a unicorn in a field of horses, constantly hoping that no one notices the horn or the wings on the side. Uh, years ago, I was teaching a group of seminarians who were learning to preach, and, and one of the students mentioned in a sermon how nobody wants to be an average Joe. And I was dumbfounded. I was going to knock him two letter grades for that because I have never wanted anything more than to be an average Joe. Average Joe would be wonderful. It would be so much better than my life. You know, I'm inundated with invitations for me and my spouse. And every time I turn to my cats and say, which one's going to be my plus one? You know? (laughs) I had to decide which friend's phone number to put on the back of my diabetic ID bracelet because I have no family. You know, I read in the Bible that John the Baptist says that men dressed in fine clothes live in palaces, and I think palaces sound wonderful. I designed a pair of handmade shoes and decided to go with blue patent leather and tan top stitching, only to have some of you turn up and say, Greg, we never knew until you wore those shoes. Um... When I welcome people to my fantastic little condo in the Central Western Historic District with my sarin and table and my crebusier chairs, I compulsively mention that my undergrad was in architecture in order to try to um, throw off their gaydar. <laughs> so why am I sharing this story now? I've been sharing it privately for 25 years, but about two and a half years ago, a fellow pastor of a PCA church in Midtown told me for the first time something I had never heard anybody say. He said, Greg, your story needs to be told. And I pushed back something about all the people and money evacuating the church as fast as possible um, and uh, concern that once you throw this thing out, it, it sticks and people start to filter everything through that lens of sexuality. I can never again just be my brother Greg. I become a sexual orientation. Um, but I told him I would pray about it. And maybe I could just share a little bit through and let the telephone system do its work and everybody will eventually find out, if not that they don't already know. But um, but he said, no, Greg, it needs to be on a billboard. I was like, hmm. <laughs> but I told him I would pray about it. And as I began praying about it over the next year... Um, God started speaking to me and saying, Greg, think of all the people who could benefit. All the people who... Think about that 15-year-old kid in youth group that's never told a soul and is suicidal because he's afraid he's going to be outed. Think of what he needs to hear, Greg. This can't be about Greg. It's got to be about Jesus. And so about a year and a half ago, I began gathering other pastors, mentors, advisors, counselors, to ask them to gather around me and, and intentionally go into a series of discernment and prayer. And it was um, after they were all praying that suddenly the Presbyterian Church in America blew up and the topic was homosexuality and I became the middle of the explosion. And uh, this January, uh, looking at that, we discerned, you know, we have changed. It was actually Jim Hatch, I think, who mentioned that, that as a group we are no longer praying about whether I should share my story publicly. It's rather a question of when and how. And we agreed that we would await, uh, wait for the Presbytery to finish the investigation that we had requested. Uh, and uh, that is now done as of this weekend. And so, so here I am um, sharing my story because I think God wants me to. So big question. What am I supposed to do with my sexuality? It's a big question, not just for people like me, but for everybody. Uh, um, you know, one study showed that for people who leave, people between 18 and 35, uh, 18 and 33 years of age who have left their conservative faith, uh, about a third say a main or primary reason for leaving was because of the way their church treated sexual minorities. Um, Jesus loves gay people, and churches just can never say that. Uh, It seems too dangerous, too risky. Um, There is a gay debate going through churches and denominations today between revisionist groups and traditionalist ones. The the revisionist voice in the church believes that Christians historically have misunderstood key passages that speak to sexual practice and homosexuality specifically. Uh, Often they are weary of years of trying to change their sexual orientation and they conclude that same-sex orientation is a good part of God's created world and that God affirms committed monogamous same-sex sexual relationships. Uh, this revisionist voice points to a long history in which the sins of non-straight people have been treated far more harshly than the sins of straight people. And they're frankly sick of being ostracized in the church and they're sick of always being treated like they're the big shameful sinners. And I get that. So why don't I go down the revisionist path? Well, briefly, when I look at the Christian scriptures, what I see is an incredibly elevated vision of sexuality, a vision of a man and a woman in a garden naked with no shame. Uh, I, I see... Uh, This story of of a man and woman, yin and yang, equal but opposite, being formed for one another and joined together in emotional, relational, sexual, financial, and legal oneness so as potentially to join with God as co-creators in the formation of new humans. St. Paul in the New Testament compares this union to the relationship between Jesus and his church so that even before the fall, marriage was designed to proclaim the gospel, to reflect this gospel cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance. I am committed to you. I am going to allow you to see me in my absolute nakedness and you are going to allow me to see you in your absolute nakedness and I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you. I will never reject you and I am here forever. And I see only one context in which that can really happen and come to fruition, and it's within a marriage between a husband and, and a wife. And so I, I hold to the traditional sexual ethic, and, and within this stunningly beautiful biblical story, sex is elevated and celebrated in Genesis and through the erotic poetry of the Song of Solomon and, and the marriage bed which St. Paul reminds us must not be, be de- neglected. And, and, and what I find so convicting personally as I read and study the Scriptures is that every single passage that describes the cultivation of sexual desire outside of that holy context, it's always treated as a bad thing. I mean, we could look at the six passages that talk specifically about same-sex uh, uh, behavior But but the reality is that everything that's not what sex was, that that God's huge yes to sex is, is anchored everywhere else by his no to other forms of expression, whether that's sex before marriage, whether that's adultery within marriage, whether those are lustful thoughts in the heart that Jesus warns us about, or whether it's sexual intimacy with the same sex. And so my calling then can frankly seem like an impossible calling. But if I'm to have any real relationship with God, he has to be able to say, Greg, you are defective. There is something broken about you. There is something that's not right. God has to be able to tell me I'm wrong. Otherwise, I don't have a relationship with him at all. And it's not just people like me who have a, a sinful sexual orientation, folks. Heterosexuality is no better roses this side of the fall. Uh, all the straight people I know are bent. Paul tells us, yeah. So you've got to get rid of that term. Um, but the biblical vision is, is so stunning in its beauty. And, and that beauty leaves all of us guilty and convicted. There is none righteous, not one. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But sadly, when I usually hear this traditional sexual ethic presented, there's usually something added to it that's not very beautiful and it's not biblical, and it is not in line with the gospel. It's possible to have the right doctrine, but to have the wrong posture. In the late 1990s, I sought out a pastor I respected, and I opened up to him because I wanted to share my story with my church. It wasn't one of our pastors. I wanted integrity. I was weary. I had only been a Christian about seven years at that point, but I was already weary of managing my image. I was fatigued over over all of the postering over of my shame, and I desperately wanted to be the same person on the inside that I was on the outside. I wanted to tell people the truth, and and he thundered at me, do not do it. If your church knew the truth, they would never be able to accept you. And so I did what I've done since then, which is to surround myself with a a circle of intimacy and transparency of people mostly outside of this church, other pastors, other mentors, other advisors, uh, counselors who, who know me and who know my whole story. But for decades, I've had Christian leaders asking me not to share my testimony. They worry. People get angry. They worry for my safety. And sometimes religious people get really worked up about what terminology you use to describe your fallen life orientation. People want to make sure that I say, I used to be gay, implying God didn't leave me there, implying that I've experienced some level of sexual orientation change that has remained elusive for me and for most of the believers who stand where I stand. You know, even the stories we tell tend to be of the same type. It always ends with a heterosexual marriage and children with the suggestion that temptations are no longer present. Uh, even the terminology we use of same-sex attraction, while many of us have found it very helpful as a way of, of distinguishing myself from, from make, making gayness not at the center of my identity, but on the periphery, uh, even that language, a whole lot of other folks have experienced as, as, uh, A kind of concealment. It's a euphemism which functions to minimize the ongoing reality of our experience. To some it feels like it's a tool to make our stories invisible. The Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood a few years ago put together a statement called the Nashville Statement, which for the most part is just a statement of biblical sexual ethics. Um, 20,000 pastors and Christian leaders have signed on to it, but Article 7 states, slipping this in, in the midst of all this true stuff around it, slips in a statement that it is a sin to adopt a homosexual self-conception. Did you hear that? It's a sin to not think of yourself as straight. Do we do that for any other group? Friends, do we forbid alcoholics from conceiving of themselves as alcoholics because drunkenness is a sin? Do we tell paraplegics that they're unfaithful for adopting a self-conception of being paraplegic? Do we tell them that they should think of themselves as able-bodied because that is God's ideal? You know, 700,000 gay people went through conversion therapy and 700,000 gay people came out still gay because it didn't work for the vast majority of people. And yet we forbid people to be honest about the effects of the fall on their life. And that frankly is in line with a larger pattern in Christian writing about sexuality. When I read between the lines of a lot of evangelical discourse about sexuality, what I often hear is an angry insistence that stories like mine be invisible. I'm not allowed to be the big shameful sinner clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. I can be an ex-sinner, a former sinner, a used-to-be-a-sinner, a sinner emeritus, a chief of ex-sinners even. But the gospel isn't for people who are currently defective. For any other group of people, we quickly shout, Jesus loves you, only gay people here. Jesus loves you, but... The problem with so much traditionalist rhetoric is that while biblically faithful in its sexual ethic, it suffers from the same spiritual problem as the revisionist stance. Neither one wants to let me be defective and loved and blessed by God. What's missing in the gay debate is the gospel. See, the gospel, what we read earlier from Philippians, it creates an emotional space in which someone like me can be defective and loved. You know, And and the traditionalist voice only works in this context of radical grace. Law, the Bible says, without gospel, law kills. Your sexual ethic, even if it's true, will destroy people if it's not wedded to the radicality of the God of grace who comes to sinners and loves them, who dies for them, who blesses them, who favors them, who sings over us in song. Paul writes, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you and in the gospel, I see a God who clothes our shame in the righteousness of his son. He says the righteousness, not that comes from law, but that comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the only thing that can heal someone like me. See, forgiveness, a lot of folks like me, we know we're forgiven. The Bible says we're forgiven. We get that. But the problem with being forgiven is that once you've been forgiven, you're still bankrupt. You just don't have a deficit anymore. And what the Bible says is just the opposite. That God not only forgives us, but he clothes us in his righteousness. That means that if you are a Christian, you have Jesus' resume. That means that you fed the 5,000. That means that you raised Lazarus from the dead. That means you always did what pleased the Father. It's the Reformation slogan of simul justus et peccator. Being both defective, a sinner, a peccator, and justus, righteous or just before God. It's the gospel that creates a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus. Martin Luther cried out, may a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is good. I want to be in a church of the faint-hearted, the failed, the feeble, and the ailing who believe in the forgiveness of sins. 30 years after becoming a Christian, I'm a celibate 46-year-old virgin who's honestly never so much as held hands. So if you shake my hand afterwards, don't hold on too long. I've got a record. (laughs) It's not that the Bible forbids hand-holding. But virginity is pretty rare in my demographic box. And it's not that I'm the good gay. Please don't throw my story at your 15-year-old and say, why can't you be one of the good ones like Greg Johnson? I'm not one of the good ones. Um, I'm, I'm one of the loved ones, loved by Jesus. Uh, I mean, I haven't been able to have an unmonitored internet connection for the last 15 years just to try to be free of an addiction. Um, I'm a big shameful sinner loved by Jesus. And in a culture that idolizes sexual pleasure and feelings of infatuation, I stand with other people like me to say that there are more precious things in this life than these. I've chosen to live decoupled. I've chosen to live with a web of friendships, which I talked about last week. Sisters and brothers who know me as my chosen family to replace the family I never had. Uh, Fifteen years now, I've been grabbing uh, 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 drinks with a friend. Uh, every Thursday night, Thursday mornings for the last 17 years, I've been meeting with one of our elders for coffee and prayer and accountability. Uh, last Christmas, um, I fixed dinner for a couple other single people who had nowhere else to go. I've, I've got another picture. Um, this should be my ordination. This was um, this was in 2003 out in that narthex. Uh, we're looking down at uh, Jenny probably knows what we're looking down at. We're looking down at the cake she made, which in fondant, told the entire history of the Christian church from Jesus to, to the present. Uh, um, uh, but that's on the left, my, my roommate from seminary, David Filson, who preached at my ordination. Um, we've known each other for 25 years. As a young Christian, we lived together for three years. And uh, when I told him uh, a year or so ago that I was thinking about doing what I'm doing today, his only response was, do it. Because he's my friend. The gospel is for gay people. We have a culture that tells a young gay person what the good life looks like. You experiment sexually in your teens, you let men buy you drinks in bars, you spend way too much time at the gym trying to build the body that will make you lovable. Um, Gay people excel in every field, driven by a never ending need to accomplish enough, be successful enough in order to become lovable. decorate our lives to poster over our shame and the hope that we'll become lovable and when those efforts fail us we turn to drugs and alcohol to self-medicate friends I can think of no community in the world that longs so strongly for what only the gospel can bring because the gospel doesn't make me lovable it makes me loved and that's better I'm thankful that a campus minister named Bill loved me he didn't try to fix me he didn't try to control me. He didn't bully me. He didn't ship me off to conversion therapy. He, didn't, he took me into his home. He loved me. He met with me constantly, so many hours, encouraging me, building me up, praying for me. And he was the first person to recommend that I pray about going to seminary. Friends, my story is not about me. You're looking at a man who has been loved by Jesus Christ. I know I've got a calling from God to steward my sexuality. The gospel doesn't erase this part of my story so much as it humbles it and redeems it. My sexual orientation does not get to define me. It's not the most important or most interesting thing about me. It's the backdrop for that, the backdrop for the story of Jesus who rescues the damaged because he is a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for favoring me. Take care of this church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Brothers and sisters, would you pray with me now? Let's pray for Greg. This is this is a day that uh, I know has been hard for you, Greg. It's been something that uh, it's been something the session has been praying about. Many of the uh, people in our Presbyterian around have been praying for, and so we, as a congregation, would like to pray for you this morning as our pastor. Let's pray, Father. I come before you, and first of all, I thank you. I thank you because you are the one that called Greg here to be our pastor. You are the one that gave him the gifts that he has. You are the one who made him, who created him. And, Lord, you have placed all of us in a community with him. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen Greg. He has opened up to us, and you know this, Father. He's opened up to us an area of his life that is profoundly sensitive, that is personal, that is, that is a level of intimacy, Lord, that many of us are fearful to even approach and yet father you have given him confidence in your son to be able to share this area of brokenness with us to be vulnerable about his own sinfulness not not to bring glory to himself but to bring, bring glory to you and to your son and so i ask that lord as this as this sermon will no doubt go out this testimony will no go out doubt go out over the internet and people will hear about it and it will be an opportunity for for some lord to to exercise a zeal that has no love And it will be directed towards Greg. I pray you would strengthen him. Give him confidence in your son. He does not stand alone. But as he stands in the gospel, he stands with Christ. Lord, I pray you would strengthen him physically. Give him rest. I know there have been many hours of prayer, many hours of sleeplessness, of concern, both about The church here, Memorial, as well as the larger church, and what will happen if he opens up and shares about this and has taken a heavy toll on him physically. Strengthen him, we pray. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would learn from Greg that before you and before one another, we can be open about our brokenness, Lord, whether we struggle with the same sinful desires that Greg does, Lord, we all struggle with them in that we are exactly alike. We are sinners. Help us to learn to be open. To identify with our sin, not because we take pride in it, but because by identifying with our sin, we are made worthy recipients of your forgiveness. We acknowledge our brokenness. Lord, we lift up Greg to you. Lord, we want to intercede on his behalf. Lord, I pray that also as you work through this, as this testimony goes out, many who struggle in the same area that Greg has his whole life, that they would see in this the beauty of the gospel. A God who is redeeming and renewing, who accepts and loves, forgives and gives righteousness. Lord, help us as a congregation Lord, that as we enter into a time that is going to be even more increased in the conversation around this area, that you would give us wisdom. Lord, help us to love like you loved us. When others, when others would decry or put down, Lord, or be mean and vicious, we ask that we would be able to love, to not respond, In that way, but to respond with the love that you showed to us for, Lord, while we were yet sinners and rebels against you. Lord, in our vitriol and our anger against you, yet you loved us. Help us to respond in that way. Lord, I pray for the church at large, for a denomination. Lord, that as we cling to the truth of your scripture, as we cling to your gospel, we would also look towards our brothers and sisters with love and understanding Lord, that we would take pride in Christ and in his forgiveness. That we would point all men to you. Lord, thank you that this morning Greg has pointed us to you. Greg is not defined by his sexuality. It's a part of who he is. It's a part of his falllessness, even as we have parts that are fallen, Lord. But who he is, is one who is loved by you. He is one who clings to Christ. Lord, we love you, and we love Greg because you have loved him. Lord, we do not reject. We do not refuse because in doing so, Lord, we would reject ourselves because it is Christ who brings acceptance. And so it is in his name that we pray, lifting up our prayers to you, lifting our pastor up to you. Lord, we love him. Lord, come to him. May we be ministers of grace to him. In Christ's name. Amen.
1: In the tradition of the church, with the Sersum corda, if a blessing is not returned, then the congregation is communicated that they do not trust their leadership <laughs> to lead them. And at that point, we don't continue on to communion. But if you do return the blessing, then that is a sign that we have unity, that Jesus is among us, and that we can take part in this meal together. And so I say to all of you now, the Lord be with you. And also with you.